Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel we have Dan Shapir. Hi from Tel Aviv. We also have Steve Edwards. Yo, 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 coming at you live from sunny and warm Portland, Oregon. I got to make up for AJ since he's not here. <laughs> right. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. We have JavaScript Remote Conference coming up in October. And I've confirmed so far for us, Abuka DJ, he's going to come speak, working on getting the rest of the speakers lined up. If you want to speak, the call for proposals is open through September. So go check it out, jsremoteconf.com. Wait a minute. Did you say you're booking a DJ? Oh, you're talking about for us? Yeah. Oh, for us. That's right. Yeah. He always explains that the way to say his last name is like you're booking a DJ. Yep. Yep. I think Dan froze up, so I'm going to pause this upload for a minute. Yeah, that didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been promised by, I've got a call like a few days ago from one of the representative from one of the ISPs here that they're laying uh-huh. out, lay, you know, laying out fiber in my street finally. So hopefully that will be eventually addressed, finally addressed. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Fiber is yeah. good. Like last mile or just close? No, the last mile. They're literally supposed or, to Or kilometer, there. excuse me. Yeah, Since we're exactly. not in the U.S., no, plus kilometer. There, yeah. There are a couple of streets nearby that already have fiber, so they're supposed. So it's just a question of, like you said, the last mile or last kilometer or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to talk about my city council pulling their heads out of any collective orifices, <laughs> but... They uh, they decided that they were going to install fiber <laughs> across the whole city. So, and and we're one of the tech hubs here in Utah. I, I don't know what they were waiting for, but anyway. So apparently, we're going to get fiber sometime within the next forever. So they are not moving fast on it at all. But I guess I can't complain. I live all the way on the west side. So, hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Anyway, let's let's talk about what not to do in JavaScript some more because we, we kind of had that discussion before. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. I think it starts with splatty do because AJ said that and I thought it was funny. Um, yes, it was. So, so I named it. Anyway... So do you want to give a little bit of context, though, as to why we're talking about these things, Dan? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, again, we, we gave an intro about it in the episode as well, yeah. but I'll give it again. So it kind of started with AJ tweeting out, you know, what are the JavaScript language features that you intentionally avoid using? And as we all know, AJ likes to take a minimalistic approach to programming languages in general. You know, he's a big fan of Go and he's not such a big fan of JavaScript partially because of the way in which this that language has expanded to such an extent. 
And I responded to AJ with a whole list. And somebody says, well, it seems like uh, you dislike most of the programming language, which is not true, which I don't think is the case. I actually like programming languages to be expressive. But anyway, so, you know, I thought it would be a, a nice and interesting topic to discuss, especially given how we had conversations about the things that JavaScript developers must know and should know and should use or not and, and stuff like that. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about things that maybe they should know, but they should know better than to use. And that's how we yeah. got here. It's like that Ken has cheeseburger meme, right? Why you hate JavaScript? Dan, why you hate JavaScript? <laughs> you know, there's an interesting thing about JavaScript. I've, I've been listening to this interview with John Carmack of uh, ID Software fame, and he also talks about JavaScript. This will be one of my picks, so, you know, an mm-hmm. advance notice for that. But he was also talking about JavaScript, and he was asked what he likes or dislikes about the language. And while listening to him talk about it, I was reminded of the fact that JavaScript is actually two things. It's a programming language, but it's also a runtime. And and when you consider it that way, then you realize that it kind of serves multiple purposes. And being a runtime, you generally do want to be kind of minimalistic, but being a programming language, and especially one that's being used by so many people, you want to be more, I guess, expressive. So that kind of shifts your attitude towards uh, what JavaScript should or contain or maybe shouldn't. Anyway. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because a lot of what we wind up talking about basically boils down to should they have added this or shouldn't they have added this this to the language as far as AJ goes. And then some of it is also just, yeah, there are different ways that different things operate within JavaScript, and they don't always align with what people think they do. And so sometimes it's in my foreign language learning, they were called false friends, where you it's a word that's similar written and spoken similar to English, but means something completely different. And so people often mistakenly use the word to mean the English meaning instead of the French or Italian meaning in the case that I'm thinking of. And so it would wind up confusing people. In other words, they would expect one outcome from the thing and get a different one. Or there are certain special cases for which the the feature in JavaScript was created and people assume that it, it works in all general cases the same way. And so a lot of the things we're talking about is just, hey, look, you know, this is going to keep your headspace clear. This will do what you expect every time. And then, yeah, some of the features maybe were less well designed when they got in or they didn't completely understand the trade-offs when it made it through the TC39. And there's another really important aspect here, which is the fact that in JavaScript, unlike many other programming languages, once something makes it in, it can never be removed. Because we distribute JavaScript in source code form, because mm-hmm. everything in the web is supposed to keep, to keep working, you're never supposed to break existing stuff whenever things update. If something is added to the DOM, to JavaScript, to CSS, once it's there, it's there for good. Yep in most cases. And that's not the case with many other programming languages that are compiled where you can choose whether to update your the version of the language that you're using or not. So mm-hmm. if you rely on some older feature 
they can or they can decide to remove a language a, lang- a feature from the language and then you know if you rely on that feature and you can't remove it from your code then you know worst case scenario you stick with the older version of the compiler and take your time well, about getting rid of it and that's yeah, the other thing i've seen is yeah, that a lot of times those get pushed into libraries similar to what we do with like uh, polyfills and stuff and so you can include it in and as long as it doesn't create some conflict when it compiles with the rest of the language a lot of times you can keep those features around but they drop them and you can't yeah, count on them being sure. there for sure. And again, that's something you just can't do with JavaScript. I think one of the features, language features that should not be used that we discussed in our previous conversation, the with keyword or with statement is one of the only, one of the really few things in JavaScript that I can think of that's been effectively removed out of the language. There are very few such examples that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so anyway, we want to go yeah, let's get to our list. Yeah, so yep. this list, uh, I want to say in advance that the, the previous list with, we had was were the features that I considered more uh, obvious or more or less controversial. Interestingly, we ended up arguing in, you know about some of them anyway. But this list is more, how would I phrase it, controversial, which I guess maybe it's a good thing that AJ couldn't make it this time. <laughs> we could never have dug ourselves fight, out, of fight, some of the rab- oh, yeah, out of some of the rabbit holes. <laughs> Can't fight. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, some of the rabbit holes are informative, right? It's like, okay, because it, cl- it forces us to clarify the, the trade-offs, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, if if we all were in total agreement about everything, this would be a really boring podcast, I think. Yeah, anyway. we'll just read the manual next time. Anyway. <laughs> so my the first language feature that is really kind of ubiquitous, ubiquitous in the language and really used a lot and I think is actually fairly poorly designed and should be avoided is the in operator. And in particular, when it's used in the context of the for loop as in for in. That usually does not mean what most JavaScript developers exactly expect it to mean and doesn't do exactly what they expect it to do. And there are better alternatives in the language to be used instead. So give an example of how they're expecting something, but it's not doing what it's they think it's doing. You know, it's like sounds yeah, like example, sounds like a princess bride, you know, I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> so so the in operator basically takes uh, you know, you apply it to an object and you give a name of a property, the literal string name of a property, and mm-hmm. it returns true if that property exists in the object and false otherwise. But it turns out that it doesn't just check check that object, but also traverses up the prototype chain. So it first checks that particular object instance, but then looks at its uh, proto property, goes up the chain all the way to the root object. So in most cases, for example, if you do an in on two string, for example, you would usually get true because almost all objects in JavaScript derive from the base object and that implements two strings. So everybody effectively gets has two strings. And usually when people want to check for the existence of a property, they want to do it in that particular object instance, not uh, traverse up the prototype chain. And for that, JavaScript actually has the uh, has own property method, which does exactly that. 
So that's in the, so in most cases, you probably want to use has own property rather than the in operator if that's what you want to do. The other thing is that in kind of exists because JavaScript objects are so dynamic in nature. So you kind of, you pass, uh, you have an object and you don't necessarily know what the structure of that object is. So you use in to, to check and, and decide what to do accordingly. And it turns out that that's an approach that's kind of problematic. If you're using an object as a dictionary, you probably should be using a map instead. And we discussed that in our previous talk on this subject. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if you're doing it because you're kind of doing duck typing, well, you know, these days with everybody moving towards TypeScript, that's kind of going out of fashion as well, effectively, you know, yeah. whether we like it or not. And as I mentioned before, for in was in particular problematic. First of all, it used to have this problem where the order was not determinate, and that's always a problem. And that actually got fixed. Oh, I, I could see that being a problem. Yeah. But that actually did get fixed. So I, oh, okay. I, don't, I don't recall which version, which ECMAScript version they fixed it in, but they actually did specify the order. So that at least was addressed. But the thing is that in most cases, what you are really interested is not the keys. For in basically right. iterates over the keys. What you're really interested in most cases are the values. And so what yep. you really generally want is something is, is for all. And for of also has this association with iterators. So it's so basically what you usually want to do is you want to use something maybe like object keys or object entries and then use for of instead. Bottom line, mm -hmm. for in is kind of like that black sheep of the family and there are better ways to iterate over collections. Let's put it this way. So, so are you saying you should use for of? Or I, oh, I always reach for like for each or something like that. Well, here's the thing. And we also touched on that in the past. So I, I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of iteration met, uh, methods like uh, map or filter because mm -hmm. they're very explicit and they have this right. declarative approach. If you see a filter, well, you know what it does. It, it filters. If you see a find, you know what it does. It finds something. When you look at a generic loop, like a for of, you know, you without reading the code, you don't know what it does. A for each is actually not such a great example of an iteration method because it's also kind it, works via side effects and it's kind of, you know, mm -hmm. it's also kind of not very descriptive, really. So out of all the iteration methods for each is kind of like, I don't know, the one I dislike, one I also try effectively not to use. But there's an, another issue. If you're doing asynchronous stuff, you know, if you're using a sync await, it, you can get into all sorts of issues or problems if you try to do it in iteration methods because you don't inherit the asynchronous nature of, of that iteration into those iteration methods, if you understand what I'm trying to say. It's kind of difficult to explain in a podcast, but if, let's say, I have an async function and inside of it I'm iterating over, over some collection and I want to, and let's say it's a collection of promises and I want to suspend that entire async function on it, I cannot use something like a for each or a map for it because, okay. because those inner functions 
they are distinct from that outer function and don't inherit its async nature, as it were. Oh, using async away with loops like that is an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I remember having to deal with that before. It's, <laughs> yeah, I, I still can't remember what I did. I just remember having to work around that. Well, you basically just use for of instead. That's probably the easiest thing to do in most cases. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree. It's a problem in the language. You know, I'm if I'm looking at it in the, the, a different programming language, like uh, Kotlin, for example, they actually have a much nicer solution for that. So in those cases, it is kind of uh, inherited into those inner functions but that's not the case in javascript and uh and so yeah if you if you want to do a wait inside your loop then you probably want to use for of instead anyway so so but going back again i would say that in as it for in is not is is something that i would generally recommend to avoid even though it's such a basic part of the language. So I actually didn't put it in the list, but you know, I mentioned it during our conversation. So again, I'll mention it again. For each is probably something that's usually not a good idea. Again, the whole benefit of those iteration methods is that they're really explicit about what they do. You you break a, you you break the iteration into a sequence of sub-operations, each one, it's very clear what it does. So you filter something, then you map it, then maybe you filter it again, and then you sum it up or, or, or whatever. And for each, like I said, is, first of all, is not very descriptive. You don't, you don't really know what it's doing. And, uh, and even worse, it works via side effects because it doesn't really return anything. So, you know, if you're just console logging the, the entire content of the collection, well, okay, I guess. But uh, otherwise, you know, if you're going to for each, you might as well just use a regular for loop. I, I actually find it cleaner in most cases. So anyway, the next one I think is going to be really controversial, and that's the else keyword. I think that else is something that's usually best avoided. Any thoughts on that? Why? <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, so I'm, I've, I've used guard clauses. I've used, I'm trying to think of what else I've done besides else. But sometimes you need it to do one thing or the other. I mean, a ternary operator is nice if you can get it all on one line and not make <laughs> it this complicated, heinous mess, right? I don't know. I mean, why, why wouldn't you use else? So first of all, before I, I, I dive into that, I do want to mention, and I said it before uh, in our previous uh, episode on this topic, that, you know, only Sith deal in absolutes. You know, there are, there are exceptions to every rule. And I'm sure <laughs> and I'm sure you'll find uh, situations in which else is the best tool for the job. And I'm not saying like, you know, this should be totally abolished from the language. I'm just saying that in most cases, I find that my code is clearer and cleaner when I don't use it. And what I usually use instead is I try to have simple, short functions with early returns. So basically, I do if something, return, if something, return, or if something, do something and return, if something, do something and return. And then, so you're kind of, every time you're not going into the if, you're effectively falling into an else. So I think the correct 
The other term that, that I've heard is short circuiting, right? Exactly. Short circuit is also what is done in Boolean expressions in JavaScript, like you know, in other languages like C or C++. You know, when you have the, let's say, the logical or operator, the two lines or the logical and operator, it also does short circuiting. So for example, if you've got the logical or, if the left-hand side is true or truthy, it never even evaluates the right-hand side. Likewise, if you've got a logical and operator, the two ampersands, then if the left-hand side is false or falsy, it never even evaluates the right-hand side because there's no point because it will be false regardless. So you've got short circuit in in Boolean expressions in, in JavaScript. And I also like this approach for conditionals. And the reason that I like it for conditionals is that it allows me to set and forget. I do an if uh, statement, I check a particular condition, I handle that condition, and then I, you know, get out of there. I, I cut out of the function, and I don't need to consider that condition anymore. So, for example, I, I can check that something is, let's say, undefined, and if it's undefined, I do something, and I leave. And from that point on, I don't need to worry about that thing being undefined anymore. And, re- and usually, by the way, TypeScript is smart enough to to do this for me. And when I have an else, I kind of need to think, wait a minute, what is th- what if statement is this else associated with? And I need to scroll up, find the condition, and then say, ah, okay, so now I'm effectively the reverse of that. Uh, so I, I kind of... I have to keep all those previous conditions, you know, in in, in my head, and, and I can't just ignore them from that point on because every time I see an else, I, I kind of need to match it with the, with the appropriate if. Well, it's a little code formatting. It's pretty easy to do from a well, readability standpoint. Necess- I mean, not necessarily. I mean, um, right? I mean, tools make it easier. You can collapse and expand and stuff like that. But still, and you know, it scrolls out of the screen or whatever. And and I just like to set and forget. And I find that short circuiting does is is a much cleaner approach for me for achieving that. So, in other words, you're putting your else in a separate if statement and return if that's true. Well, I don't even need the else. I have an if for the if, and I have a return at the end of the if. Okay, so then you're writing another function for the else then? I mean, I mean, there are legit no, cases I, where you, yeah, I need to do either let, this or say, this. So, so basically, let's say I test the condition X and I do either A or B. So you might write it as if X, A, else B. I would write it as if X, A, return, and then just B. And I can't get to the B if the X existed because I'll hit that return statement. But what so, if there's more you need to do? What if there's more? Then I put it in. I so I put. That's why I said that it goes hand in hand with having small functions. So usually I'll separate this entire sequence of doing this or that into its own function, and then I would call that from the containing function that would have done the if you know I would have had the if else in it. Now obviously, if all you have in the if situation is like one line, and all you have in the else is one line and they're really simple lines, then, you know, it feels like, I don't know, maybe too much effort. And in that case, like I said, you know, there are no absolute rules here. But, you know, in most cases, I tend to avoid else. 
So I, it, it's funny because usually you and AJ get into stuff and I'm just like, I can see both sides on this one. I think it depends on the case. I, uh, I rich- think it depends on the size. I think that Dan's approach works when you have small cases, but once you start getting a bigger code, you're having to jump around between functions just to look at how a particular case is handled. I think that's going to get messy real fast. Actually, yeah. I find that I find that that's the opposite situation in most cases because if I name a function appropriately so that the name describes what it does, again, I don't have to jump into the function to figure out what it does because then its name tells me what it does. So, so basically, that having an if else in the middle of the code is kind of you might say a code smell indicating to me that here I have a bit of complicated logic. And it makes sense to break it off into a separate function. Now, if I have a problem naming that function, because what it does is so trivial that I can't come up with a truly descriptive name, then maybe, you know, maybe it does make sense to keep it in where it was supposed to be and just use an if and an else. But in most cases, you know, I like to keep my functions lean and mean. So what's your opinion of ternaries? Sorry? What's your opinion of a ternary, a simple ternary, one-line ternary? A one-line ternary I can live with, again, but once it becomes, once you've got to start indenting that thing, (laughs) it's... Oh, yeah. I mean, you can, I've seen examples of, you know, three levels of meta ternaries within one, and that's, I mean, that's a mess. There's no point in that, but... But I mean, just a simple, if this is true, then do this other, or return this. Other than that, I do that in computed values all the time in view or any number of cases. So I think you can't get much leaner and meaner than a one-line ternary for an if-else, you know, oh, if yeah. it's very also, simple. Yeah. I thought yeah. that I agree with that. And also ternaries work really well with uh, the const because you kind of, with, with when you have an if-else and you're trying to use that to set some value, you need to declare it using let or var out before the if and then you know, assign the value in, in the in the various clauses. And with a ternary, you can just make it const. So, and, and again, that's kind of, you know, that's a, a not necessarily such a nice aspect of the language, but, you know, there we are. And like you say, if, if it's a simpler ternary, ternary expression, then I'll keep it. And if it becomes complex, then I'll probably break it off into its own function again and give it a name. So the thing that I'm reacting to with this is that I have this visceral reaction to using return as control logic or as as a control function, right? So you're effectively saying return because I'm not going to execute the rest of this function. I think what you're controlling for is actually, yeah, when you get the long procedure inside of an if and then another one inside of an else, I mean, that's that's a problem. That's that's a code smell, right? You should be able to extract those out into their own functions and then keep it simple to where you can either do a ternary operator or an if, do this, do this, do this, else, do this, do this, do this. And it's just these these simple calls to other functions. The idea of just saying, hey, return, because the condition's met, I only use that for like guard clauses, right? I'm expecting a string return if I didn't get a string in my arguments, right? But Otherwise, I, I'm just down uh, to, yeah, but I, even I then it's throw an error, right? Yeah, I get what you're saying, but I just, you know, basically consider all this all logic like that to be kind of guard clauses like like what's the big difference really and uh, now i get why some people especially to an extent old timers maybe are kind of uh, reluctant about uh, hey, hey 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 <laughs> i'm older than you <laughs> because i know <laughs> because it kind of it kind of smells like a go to 
and a and, little bit. Yeah, and and we've we've experienced languages, programming languages that actually used Go to, and then we were told mm-hmm. and banged on the head with a hammer that Go tos are evil. You know that uh, famous uh, Dijkstra article: Go tos are con- uh, are 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 harmful or considered harmful or something like that. Well, that brings so, back memories of BASIC on a Commodore 64 in the mid 80s. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Where you could do an easily do loop. You could easily do a loop with go to and fill up your screen real fast, which is fun when you're a teenager first messing with <laughs> programming. Yeah. The, the yeah. interesting, the interesting point that I once heard in this context is that the problem is not the go to, it's the come from that you don't know how you got to a particular point. So that that's kind of the problem mm-hmm. with a go-to. But anyway, so, you know, those of us who experienced languages where go-tos were prevalent, like BASIC, you know, kind of carry the scars, and then a return kind of smells like a go-to. But once you no. get over that, and you know, most most developers these days, I don't think experience languages that make use of go-tos. And then again, if you keep your function small there's no come from problem here you know exactly where this return is going to send you to because it's all let's say the function fits on your screen and the return just sends you to that bottom of that function and that's it yeah see for me return means you asked me for this here it is right okay and and if i call return i like to return some value something that you asked me for exactly you know Usually, and, it's the result of the computation of that if. The if right. says, you know, if something, do something, that something that you do generates some sort of a value, and then you return it. Yeah. But anyway, so to my thinking, then, if I'm calling return, it means here's the thing. Whereas if if I have an if else, it's just part of the procedure. But yeah, you know, it shouldn't get that complicated. If you're nesting if ifs and else's, you're going to you're going to get lost in them if you have a big long body to your if statement and then another big long body to your else statement you're going to get lost in it you need to break that up but yeah i i just don't think of return as a control statement to say hey done executing i guess that is what it means but yeah for me it's just it's not an approach that i would use i would much rather just use the if else and then return whatever it is that they're asking me for at the end of the the function all basically as i'm saying is once if the if else is really really small then i'll mm-hmm. probably end up with a ternary expression and if the if yep. else becomes bigger then i end up splitting it into its own function and once i split it into its own function rather than using if else i just do if return and then the other condition right. And like I said, I like to keep my functions really small and concise. Yeah. And, you know, that's the that's the way that works best for me. What I yeah. what is I, the way of less pain, usually. Yeah, what I what I tend to see when I see if else's in code, I, it usually, from my experience, goes hand in hand with overly complex functions and logic. And it, you know, really quickly gets to a point where it's difficult to follow that's my that's been my experience but again yeah this is just you know this is my opinion something for our listeners to try out consider try out and see how you know whether they like it or not but i totally accept that some people might have a different opinion on this mm-hmm. i actually think that this is something that aj tends to agree with me about but uh, we can ask him when he's back on yeah 
Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, my approach is just if if I have to scroll up to see what the if was from the else or the if, then I need to break out a function. I, I need to pull this stuff off and do it somewhere else so that it's it's clear that this this is what's happening. Usually needing to scroll is my indica- is an indication to me yeah. that the function is too long. <laughs> I like yep. my functions to yep. fit to fit in the screen. That's effectively what I'm saying here too. And once you have that body of the if and body of the else in different functions, you can usually abstract it into a ternary operator unless your conditional clause is longer complicated, in which case you can move that off into its own function. That's why I like to have a 32-inch vertical screen. I can fit a lot of function on there. (laughs) But you're the one that one of the people that turns their screen on the side, you know, so uh, you can have longer functions. Exactly. Just for that reason alone. I remember the days where you should see all the comments he puts in those functions too. <laughs> Code comments. Let's that that's and that's one that I didn't bring up. You know, that's that's an episode on its own. Whether or not you like code comments. Yeah, Steve's functions. It's a novel and function. Well, I actually throw some dad jokes in there too to keep people on their toes, and and so that tends to make things longer. But that's another discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what were you saying, Dan? No. So, oh, yeah. One more thing that uh, when I mentioned else as something that I like avoid using in that Twitter thread, somebody asked me, well, what about else if? And the thing is that JavaScript doesn't really Ugh. have an else if. It has an else. I hate else if. And it has an if. When you write else if in JavaScript, effectively what you've done is simply not put in the curly brackets. So, yeah, you might as well have written else, open curly brackets, and then in the if. And, and yeah, so given the fact that there is no, you know, I recall some programming languages that actually have an LF keyword, but, you know, that's not JavaScript. And consequently, if I dislike else, then I obviously dislike else if, because it makes the logic even more complicated. And again, it, with with breaking it up into uh, this, that short circuit approach, I can have a sequence of really simple if uh, statements one after the other, which mm-hmm. are effectively like an else if, but without that thing of having to go back up and figure out, yeah, wait a minute, what is this an else for? And did I put the if on in the correct place? Or maybe it should have been, you know, the indentation can get really tricky really quickly with these sort of things. Yeah, for me, the else if isn't the indentation and it's not that it it's branching logic where you can have now more than two branches. The issue for me is that you're effectively breaking up the conditional for every other condition that you can have because it's not the first case and this case. It's not the first case or the second case and this case. And that that's, you know, then I have to cross my eyes and go, <laughs> okay, so 
it's it, you know it's not a string and it's it happened in 2022 and <laughs> right exactly you know it that, that's my problem is that it breaks up that conditional ca- clause and it just makes it really tricky to figure well, out. Well, you know the solution and for so, that is code comments. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because our You know, sometimes you have to. Yeah, compilers validate but, code yeah. comments, right? Exactly. Yeah, I think we So so in that case, I would rather have the if else and then if else because you're still breaking up the conditional, but you know you you're doing a binary switch every time. Mm. I don't. Know. Anyway, I think we flogged else. Looking at the rest of our list that we have left to go, yeah. And time so left. Let's move to the let's move to the next one. One thing. Uh, so the next one is also going to be kind of controversial, I guess, or maybe not. Let's see. Uh, I really wish that JavaScript did not have null, or yeah, or or put it differently, the fact that it has both null and undefined is a shame. It should have only had one. And mm-hmm. consequently, I try to avoid using null as much as I possibly can and just use undefined. Now, you might ask, well, why not the other way around, especially given that uh, null is fewer characters to type and probably also more familiar to people coming from other programming languages? And the answer is that in JavaScript, you really can't get away from undefined. If you get the value of a property that doesn't exist or a property that hasn't been initialized or a variable that hasn't been initialized, what you get back is undefined, not null. So null is something that you need to explicitly set into something. Uh, So undefined is kind of built into the language. You can't get away from it, whereas null is something that you kind of explicitly use. And given that, I try to avoid using null. Now, if we did not have the undefined as a word in the language that you can use it actually also has the undefined value, it would have been more problematic, but it does exist. So really, there's hardly any reason to actually use null that I can think of. There are a few cases, unfortunately, in the language where you kind of have to use null, and I'll touch on one of them uh, in a bit. But generally speaking, you know, if I if I can, I really try to avoid it. Now, per my understanding, the reason that null and undefined were both added originally into JavaScript is kind of it was kind of influenced by uh, databases where there's a difference between not having a field versus having a field that doesn't have a value. But it turns out that most people don't really care about this distinction so much. Mm-hmm. And and it only at the end of the day, it kind of just created noise into the language. I mean, the fact that we need to have like the, the recently added nullish operator and because we can't just check for undefined because it might be null or we can't just check for null because mm-hmm. it might be undefined. So we need an operator to, to deal with it, the, you know, the two question marks or the, the optional chaining where it, it needs to handle both null and undefined again because life. And also, you know, the fact that type of uh, null is object rather than whereas type of undefined is undefined is yet another advantage for undefined. So most of the programming that I've done, and I've done a handful of languages, they all have a null, nil, you know, whatever, right? And effectively, what it means is we don't know. And some people try to use it as falsy or use it as hasn't been set up yet or use it as right. And so it has all these definitions. I think undefined is just more honest. 
<laughs> we haven't done anything with this yet. Yeah. Right. Exactly. We don't know what this is. You know, maybe and, in an and ideal, that's what it is anyway. Yeah, maybe in an ideal world, what is undefined in JavaScript would have been called null, and we wouldn't have had both. But it is what it is. Yeah. We have both of them, and so consequently, I really try to avoid using null. Another interesting issue with null, by the way, is if you have, let's say, an optional uh, argument in a in a function, if you pass in undefined. You'll get you'll get the default value that you specify in the function declaration, but if you pass in null, then you won't. You'll get null, and and that's another example of where undefined probably has a closer behavior to what you know is actually intended in that in that mm-hmm. situation. So, can you ever run into a situation where null is undefined? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the one, Bar, no. yeah, the, the one thing that I, yeah, there are, like I said, there are a few <laughs> cases, yeah, there are a few cases in the language where unfortunately null was chosen. Uh, for example, if you use match, the regular expression match, and it doesn't match, then it returns null rather than undefined. And, and I'll give another example where null is a, is a requirement, you know, when we get to the next item on my list. But, but bottom line is, you know, why have to use null because I have no choice? Well, like, you know, obviously I have no choice, but otherwise I just, you know, try to avoid it and use undefined wherever I can. Any, yep. anybody disagrees? Nope, not here. I actually use null quite a bit more than undefined. The only time I can, I've ever really used undefined is when something's returning it. I have to check, you know, with type of to see if, if something's returning undefined and then handle this case from there. But I usually don't assign values to undefined. And why do you use null? Because it's fewer characters to type? Or do you have any like intent there or just because you're used to it? Just because I'm used to it. I mean, partially because I'm saving finger stress, you know, having to type four <laughs> characters instead of eight. That's Think about it, that's double the work. So I'm just being efficient. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, there are, there are a couple of things that the uh, choices that uh, Brendan Ike made in the language, like, you know, function, having to type the entire word function rather than just fun or funk or something like that. But maybe yeah, funky. So, yeah, you should use funky. Yeah. Well when you're writing so, a script language in ten days, I mean you gotta make some quick choices. <laughs> yeah. And again, un- un- uh, undoubtedly undefined is kind of kind of long. How many characters is that? Eight? But no, nine. But and that's kind of unfortunate. But but yeah, but still they kind of mean the same thing. There's no extra value in using null. And so why use it? And I, I, like I said, I, I can't get away from undefined, but I can decide to avoid using null. And so I try to steer clear of null. Anyway, moving on to the next one. Uh, this one has an interesting story about it, and that's uh, object.create. Are you familiar with it? Not really. Yeah, this is one I of used those object cases. To, I think object assign is what I use most of the time, like when you want to do a, a deep copy, but no, not object create. So those are. This is an example of something where, of a, you know, when I'm saying you shouldn't use this, and people are going like, "Whoa, I didn't even know this existed." <laughs> so, but uh, so I'm, I'm telling people not to use something that they didn't pretend, probably didn't know about. But uh, but anyway, if if they somehow do know about it, then I'm, you know, then they shouldn't use it. And if they see it in the code, well, now they know about it and know why they shouldn't use it. Um, so object create is yet another way for JavaScript code to create an object instance. The simplest use is you do object.create and hand over a reference to another object, which would be used as a prototype, and it will 
return an empty object that has what you pass in as a prototype as its prototype. So it's it's another way to create an empty object. So if you think about, if you do like an open curly braces and then immediately close curly braces, that's an empty object that has the simple object, big O, as its prototype. That's why it has methods like uh, to string, for example, which we mentioned before. But when you do, when you create an object with object.create, you need to explicitly specify what the prototype is and you can pass in null, in which case it won't have a prototype. So you can literally create an object that has no prototype. And that was kind of useful back in the day when you were using, let's say, object as dictionaries and you wanted it to work with the in operator. So here you see like this, all these things that I recommended not using all coming together. Now, the funny thing about this one is that it was originally proposed by uh, Crockford, uh, Douglas Crockford. I even found a link to the article where he proposed it and where he gave like a simple implementation, how to actually polyfill it into the language when it doesn't exist. But I, but it turned out to be an actually not such a great idea. And and I, I seem to recall, I couldn't find it where he even admitted it, that at the end of the day, he doesn't really use it anymore. And, it, you know, it's a shame that it was added. So you could use it in two ways. Like I said, you could either just pass in the prototype reference and it would create an empty object. And that's kind of a bad idea because that means that you now use imperative logic to or imperative statements to add properties into that object you constructed. So you kind of create something with no properties on in it and then using statements, just add stuff into it. And that's like a bad idea You in most cases. Franken object. Yeah, exactly. It's a bad idea for constructing objects generally. You want to declaratively construct objects. And especially in a language that has such great support for object literals. I mean, why go there? The other way where you, uh, way where you can use object create and, and create non-empty objects is actually to pass in a properties object, kind of like the defined property or defined properties. And that's a very verbose and unreadable way to construct objects. I'm not even going to try to describe it in a podcast. If you're interested, just, you know, check the MDN for object.create and you'll see examples. But it's very verbose unfriendly to to typescript and stuff like that and and you know like why so it just it turned out that it was a bad idea that's it you know if you want to create objects just use object literals and and by the way these days you can even explicitly specify the prototype in an object literal using the underscore underscore proto underscore underscore property which is probably something you shouldn't use either unless you really know what you're about. Yes, I think we need to be very objective about that. (laughs) Yeah, where's the drum roll? Okay, here we go. Sorry, sorry for those who think drum roll should only be for dad jokes at the end. (laughs) No, they should be. (laughs) As I was told on Twitter. Yes. You know, they should be for other stuff as well. It's just that we had an episode that for (laughs) some reason, like every other sentence, we had the drum roll. Yeah. Uh, It kind of... So it was stuck on, on, on loop or something. Anyway. Just had an so, itchy tr- trigger finger that day. 
Yeah, exactly. So object.create is basically something that you probably didn't know. And, and if you didn't know, then it's a good thing. And if you encounter it, then now you know, but you also know to avoid it. And let's move on. The but more I, you know. Yeah, I will put the link to the art to Crockford's article that I did find in the show notes. So if you're interested in in his original re- reasoning back from 2008, I believe, into why it should be added to the language, then you can read it there. Another thing that, oh, this is something that I'm seeing more and more in code, and I really hate it. Now, I understand why people are like drawn to it. There are even like one or two advantages to it. But that doesn't change the fact that I really hate it and I don't use it. And that's creating named function using the arrow operator. So writing something like uh, const foo equals open parentheses, something close parentheses, arrow, and then, you know, the open curly braces and then whatever. I really, really don't like it. If you were, if you want to declare a function, we have the perfectly expressive and informative function keyword to do just that. Why use the arrow for it? I I just don't, I really don't get it. It's like some people like felt like arrow is the new thing, you know, arrow everywhere. Like me, like function is deprecated. Well, it's totally isn't. And I just, I like to say what I mean and what, and when I create a name function, I like to to create it using the function keyword. That's it. So you don't get the point of arrows? No, I totally get the point of arrows. I use arrows a lot. I was trying to make a dad joke. Sorry. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Uh, okay, okay. Anyway, yeah, so, so the, I do have a question on this, though, because sometimes I see it. I, I agree with you on the point of const function name equals arrow function. But I also see it semi-frequently on things that, have a callback in them, right? And so it's something, and then you pass it a callback function, and I see those callback functions defined with an arrow. Oh, do you I, put I, function blah in there too, or no, does no, that not no, no, no. For those, I do use arrows. When when it's anonymous, okay. I like to use an arrow. I like to use arrows when they are effectively part of an expression. It also generally means that they need to be kind of short. Mm-hmm. They need to be. The code needs to be. It almost almost a one-liner by definition. You know, sometimes it might be two or three, but in, but really short, and the code must be obvious. Like, you can, you can look at that code at a glance and immediately figure out what it does. If it isn't, then you need to give it a name. And if you need to give it a name, a descriptive name, then I like to use the function uh, keyword. Now, there is one advantage to using const, which is that it makes that name const. If you try to reassign to that name, you'll get an exception, which is probably what you want. Like you generally don't mm-hmm. want to reassign to functions, but it does potentially introduce a whole can of worms around hoisting. Because when you create functions like that using const or let or var or whatever and assigning an arrow function to that, you don't hoist that function definition to the top of the scope. And, right. and that's, and that's really potentially problematic. You know, your, that function doesn't really exist until you get to that line of code. And that's, and, and especially given that I like to put my, the, the higher uh, level functions at the top and the really specific functions at the bottom, that kind of is problematic or potentially even dangerous when you're using, uh, you know, const with an arrow. 
you will run into situations where you think a function is is defined and you know because the execution path was slightly different well all of a sudden it, it isn't so you kind of are then forced to put these at the top and I really don't like to put them at the top because it means that I'm reading the functions when I don't yet have sufficient context to even understand why they're needed you know it's interesting that you say that because I've written code where it took that approach with the const. And I just realized that that was my issue with trying to order everything in the right order <laughs> so that it would run. And if I just used the function keyword, it would have hoisted everything and figured it out. Exactly. And and I don't, and again, I don't even, I don't really know why people do it. It's like, it's like I, well, sometimes when I ask, you know, people, why, why did you do it? Because const is cool. Well, they say, because that's the modern way. That's that's how JavaScript is supposed to look these days. This is what the exam- code examples that I'm seeing look like. So basically, it's a fad. And like I said, I do like arrow functions for very spe- specific things. I mean, look, in an ideal world, if instead of a function, if, uh, if Brendan Eich had named it fun, let's say, F-U-N, then maybe it would have been so you know short enough that we wouldn't even have needed arrows. But uh, I get why... Using the function keyword is is too long for anonymous functions. And also, you know, I do like the fact that, you know, if you don't put in the curly braces, then it's you also get the, the implicit return. It, it makes uh, the use of such uh, arrow functions really nice as function expressions and stuff like filter or find makes it even more readable, at least in my opinion. AJ might disagree. But again, I just don't get it in, in the in the context of uh, of named functions uh, even one liner named functions i prefer to use the function keyword i like to be explicit i like to avoid the whole uh, ordering issue that's the result of, of of you know avoiding hoisting i'm lazy so the ordering issue sells me on this right because i don't think about it yeah okay now that i've convinced you let's move to the next one the next one is one that i'm personally i'm kind of I'm kind of unsure about some some it's it's one that uh, I, I've kind of debated with myself whether or not to add it to the list because uh, on the one hand I, I dislike it and often when I use it I end up refactoring the code and and it kind of goes away but on the other hand it's kind of needed so I don't know it's the the switch keyword it's useful in certain cases like reducers but generally i find that i don't know maybe it's just the syntax that that uh, javascript got from from java and from c you know maybe if we had a uh, proper something that looks more like the the match that you have in certain programming languages maybe i i wouldn't have uh, disliked it so much but i just find that i dislike the switch statement yeah that i agree switch statements never work the way that i expect them to ever in any language like I, I always wind up having to debug them over and over and over again. Yeah, the fact that the case clauses aren't a scope is an issue. The case that you the yep. the thing the the fact that you have a full th- uh, through and you have to use the break keyword, uh, mm-hmm. the fact that uh, if you don't specify a condition, 
it kind of skips the entire switch, which kind of brings up the question of why do I even need a default and why is it called default and not else <laughs> and, right. and, and stuff like that. The, the ordering is never trivial. And, you know, it's, it's kind of not such a nice, it, it just has an, this annoying syntax. And, and also it, it seems to kind of create this kind of coupling because in, in like in, in, in strictly type programming languages, especially the, the more modern ones, you kind of are forced by the compiler to match all the possible conditions. And if you don't have this ability to fall through, you have to be really explicit about, you know, you can have like an else or a default, which is a catch-all, but if you neglect that, the compiler will actually scream at you that you mm-hmm. need to cover all your bases. And that certainly does not exist with Switch. So it's it's so easy to... So you, it, to forget something, which means that you've created a tight coupling between all the various values that can be assigned to a variable anywhere in the code and all the switch statements that are associated with that variable. And it's just not nice. That's that's what I think. So I, I try to use dynamic dispatching instead uh, a lot of times, you know, which is basically just using the the value that I'm switching on as uh, some sort of a key into some sort of a, a, a map or an object or something, and then uh, having and, and selecting the method to execute this way, or just even using ifs. I, I just don't like switch. What can I say? I was already on that train with you. So. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where there are, you know, there, as you said earlier, there's exceptions to every rule, and there's cases where where, uh, no pun intended, where switch works well. But I think, yeah, as a primary structure within your code, it's probably not the best. Yeah, it's also, again, it, it, it tends to be so verbose. It's, it's always, you know, I like, like I said, I, I like to keep my functions lean and mean and short. And with switch, they always end up being, you know, long and complicated. And anyway, by the way, an interesting fact about switch statement in, in JavaScript is that some people don't know. In other programming languages, like, um, like let's say C, switches are often uh, translated effectively into uh, this sort of a lookup table or a jump table. Whereas in, in JavaScript, it actually is like a sequence of ifs. So you can actually, in JavaScript, reverse the what you put in the switch and what you put in the cases what I'm, what i mean is is that in let's say in c or in java what you put in the switch statement that's the variable what you put in the case uh, uh, statements those have to be constants in javascript you can actually reverse it you can actually put expressions or variables in your case uh, so you can do like switch on true and then do a case expression, case expression. It, it will uh, stop at the first expression that is truthy. I'll try it out. It's really funny. Yeah. But again, be that as it may. R- Ruby does that too, because it evaluates it on a triple equal. Yeah. So, which is a fuzzy match. Yeah. And, and again, that's, so it just goes to show that there really is hardly any benefit, even over a sequence of ifs. And uh, and again, given that, I just don't like it very much. Yep. The last item that I have on my list, unless you have additional suggestions, is uh, something that, again, I'm probably, I'm doubtful that many people uh, know even existed. You know, maybe people who use Svelte, 
might, you know, have become familiar with it because Svelte kind of uses it for something really specific. But anyway, it's the fact that JavaScript, despite not having a go-to statement, actually does support labels in the code. So you can actually put an identifier colon and that would be used in your code and that would be used as a label. And what you can do with it is that you can label loops and then you can use that label in a break or a continue to specify which loop, let's say, to break out of. So you can have, a let's say, a loop within a loop and if you want a break in the inner loop to actually break out of the outer loop, oh, interesting! you can actually use a label to name, as it were, the outer loop and then do break space in that label and you would like break out of that outer loop. Now, this is way too close to go to, to, go to for my liking. If I have this type of a scenario, I would usually put these loops inside a function and then return out uh, return out of it or something mm. like that. It's like I said, it's it's way too close to a go to for my liking. What do you think? I agree. I, I I do functions. If I have to nest loops at all, I'm I'm reaching for do this function and that function has the other loop in it. And then if I need it to bubble out to break, then it'll be break if false or have it throw an error or something like that. Yeah, chalk this up under things I learned. Yeah. Uh, so interestingly, like I said, people who use Svelte might have encountered it because Svelte has this concept of using a dollar as a special label. So the, it kind of adopted. So Rich Harris encountered this label syntax, which apparently he wasn't familiar with, and then say, hey, this is useful for a very particular case that I have. When you use in Svelte uh, a dollar as a label on a statement, you're actually indicating to the Svelte compiler that this is a reactive expression. This is an expression that needs to be computed when one of the things that it depends upon changes or something along these lines, as I recall. So interestingly, Svelte adopted this syntax, but for a very different intent, uh, which is, you know, Svelte tends to do that sort of thing. Uh, It uses JavaScript statements and keywords for things that are somewhat different that, you know, similar to, but different from what JavaScript, like, you know, the language itself uses them for. So it's interesting. It's a, it's a discussion worth having as well, like what we think about the fact that uh, Svelte kind of subverts JavaScript in, in certain ways. Cool. Anyway, that essentially covers my list. Good deal. Well, I've got to take off in five <laughs> minutes, so I'm going to push us to picks. But yeah, it, it's been an interesting conversation. And yeah, I mean, some of these I just, I've never used. And some of them, I, I think the else is probably going to be one that I think a lot of people are going to have to think over. But yeah. Well, if we've got people thinking, we've done our job. Yep. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and do some picks. I see that Steve signed in as a host, so I'm going to go first and I'm going to jump off. So we played this game and I'm trying to remember what it's called. Well, I'll come back to it if I can 
if I can remember what it is. But uh, in fact, I'll just pick a different game. So I usually pick a game. I'm going to pick a game called Orbis. I think I might have picked it on the show before. I'm almost certain I have. So Orbis is you're building a universe and effectively what it is is you're stacking these tiles. You kind of lay them on the table. They're hexagon shaped and they, you know, they kind of stack up into a pyramid shape. But you can only stack tiles on tiles of the same color as as the one below it, right? So if you have a green and a yellow next to it, the the one that goes kind of in that little V shape at the top of two hexagons together has to be green or yellow. And, uh, you know, as you build and you pull these tiles, uh, you get worshipers and they're just little cubes and you put the cubes on and you get to pick a god for your universe who gives you bonuses at the end of the game. And effectively, you're trying to score the highest score. It's a pretty fun game. It's what 45 minutes, I think. Is that a board and game or like to... a video game? Or It is a board okay. game. It is a board game. It, it has a weight of 2.09. So it's kind of right at that ideal uh, game night, casual gamer level. I wanted to ask you about that. I hope you have <laughs> a minute to, to, to answer it. Yeah. Of, you know, so you're mentioning all these games that are appropriate for, for game nights, but if you're bringing in people and it's a new game, don't you spend like the entire game night just teaching that new game? Sometimes, if it's a really complicated game, sometimes. What I found is that what you wind up doing is you wind up kind of, a, you set it up, and you kind of walk people through the basic mechanics and then you play it. And so usually um, the setup takes a few minutes longer than normal. You spend five to 10 minutes explaining the fundamentals of the game and then you play through it. And then after that, then you can play an actual game where people are strategizing in a way that makes sense. And most of the game nights I go to or hold, we're there for like three or four hours. So anyway, so the answer is kind of, but yeah. Anyway, uh, other picks. I've been playing a game on my phone lately. It's called Diablo Immortal. If you've played the Diablo uh, video game series from Blizzard, it's pretty fun. You know, I'll pick it up and I'll play a quest and then I'll put it down. And you can kind of do that. And so, yeah, I've, I've been enjoying that. I've also started listening to the Michael Vay book series again by Richard Paul Evans. They are, it's not the most sophisticated book I've read. And, and I've had some people actually complain when I've, refer you know recommended the books to them they're you know they're like they're a little juvenile but they're well written i really enjoy them and there's a new book coming out at the end of september and so i'm listening to all those books on audible so i'm going to pick that and then the last thing is is i'm just going to encourage people to go check out js remote conf in addition to that i'm looking at pulling together a javascript meetup sometime in september it'll be online we're going to have a social hour afterward so you know, feel free to keep an eye out for that. Topendevs.com slash meetups. And yeah, that's pretty much what I got. Cool. I'll let you guys do your picks and take it from here. I got to jump onto this other call and Steve can end the call. So bye, Chuck. And Chuck is gone. Woo-hoo. All right. You want to go next to picks? Okay. I'll go next then. So my first pick is the pick that I already mentioned at the beginning of our show. It's that interview with uh, John Carmack. So he was uh, an, a guest on uh podcast, I guess, uh, hosted by uh, Lex Friedman. And it's a really long interview. It's like a five-hour interview or something like that. But it's John Carmack. For those of you who don't know, John Carmack is like that legendary 10x or maybe 100x programmer 
He's the he co-founder of ID Software. They're the ones who created uh, Castle Wolfstein and, and Doom and Quake and whatnot. He's credited with inventing a lot of these uh, 3D game engines that actually made the, all this thing possible. Uh, he later was uh, CTO of Oculus VR at Meta. He's kind of legendary in our industry. And it, like I said, it's a five-hour interview. I'm like only like 30 minutes into it, but it's really interesting. He has a really interesting perspective on our industry as a whole, having been in it for such a long time, having been involved in so, so much uh, development and innovation. And he's also really hands-on tech guy. So I, it, you know, I recommend listening to that and I'll put the link in the, in the show notes. So that's, that's my first pick. Another pick that I have. So we've had Steve from Builder.io, the CTO, the CEO of Builder.io on our, on our show, uh, talking about uh, Builder.io and, and we'll have other people from that company, uh, joining us in the upcoming weeks. And I've just encountered an interesting project that they've started, which is a, a framework benchmark. Uh, that kind of trying to compare the performance of the various uh, frameworks that are out there, you know, uh, React, Vue, Svelte, and whatnot. And the way that they're going about it is interesting. They have this tool that uh, they developed, which uh, Steve mentioned, which is called Mitosis, which kind of take a, takes a generic representation of uh, components and then compiles them into components in the uh, framework of choice. So you can like create a generic description of a component and then compile it into a React component or compile it into a view component and so forth. So they wrote their framework using that kind of component programming language, I guess. It's kind of, it looks kind of like React. It uses JSX. And then they compiled it into those various frameworks and then they benchmark the results. Uh, so assuming they generate properly efficient code in all the, the uh, frameworks that they support, uh, it's an interesting way to compare the performance of those various frameworks if that's what you're interested in. So if, you know, building performant uh, um, applications is an important consideration for you and you're thinking of, hey, which framework should I choose? then, you know, this is something interesting to look at. And again, I'll put a link to that. And my final pick is that same pick that I pick each and every time because unfortunately it just keeps on going and that's the war in Ukraine. It's, I, I'm, I'm afraid it's really becoming normalized. It's no longer at the top of the news and we just tend to forget that hundreds of people are literally dying every day and it's so terrible. And we need to continue to see how, what we can do to end this conflict and, and, and I guess, support the people of Ukraine uh, in their struggle to be free and, and not be oppressed so, and not be killed. So, so yeah, so that would be my, my final pick for today. All righty. So I guess I'm up. All right. So first off, uh, before I get to the high point of every podcast, is an article I found on, on Hacker News. Um, so as... If anybody's followed astronomy or NASA uh, over the past couple months, uh, you've noticed that uh, the James Webb Space Telescope has finally been put in place and is sending back data and some pictures. And some of the pictures are just unreal with the amount of clarity 
and how close up they are much, much better than the Hubble. And, you know, if you think about how good the Hubble was when it first came out, so this is that much more. And so it's really, it's quite fascinating to look at some of these these uh, images and in particular how far back in in time they go because of the speed of light and and so on i won't get into all that i have been you know i dabble and read about astronomy and cosmology and and various science of of that nature and in particular you know up until the web was uh, telescope was deployed you know the big bang theory the hot big bang has sort of been the dominant theory not a fact, a theory in cosmology um, as in terms of describing uh, how the universe started and was formed and so on. And there's an interesting article uh, that I saw in Hacker News from a, uh, a website called mindmatters.ai, how the clarity of the photos that are coming from James Webb are, are causing people to question that theory because of what they're seeing in terms of the smoothness or the clumpness or the clumping of galaxies and back farther in time, not at all what was predicted by uh, uh, Einstein's theory. So I guess part of me is interesting thinking, oh, wow, that's interesting. They have data to challenge a, a pretty entrenched theory. But the bigger issue that I see with this article is that's how science should work. Okay. Exactly. I thought there is never any time you ever hear somebody say, quote unquote, the science is settled. They don't know what science does. You know, you always everything is being challenged. Even the most deeply entrenched theories can be challenged when new data comes along to uh, provide, you know, new points of view or something that you hadn't thought of before. Totally. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, I see how (laughs) when it comes to pandemics and things and people say the science is settled, this works and this doesn't is complete BS, but that's what gets me thinking about this. So this is just a good example of how in some branches of science, at least it still works and and things are challenged. That's the great thing about science that, uh, you know, when something is, is shown to be, when, uh, when, uh, entrenched theory is shown to be potentially incorrect, scientists become excited. That's the opportunity to win Nobel prizes. It's, it's the, the being able to, the, the ability to be able to challenge the, you know the the dominant uh, uh, view is is when breakthroughs are made, and, and that's yep. the beauty of science. Totally, yep. that's how that. it should be practiced. It isn't always, but in this one case, well, this you is know, how it people should. are people. You know, people tend to be set in their ways. People don't don't like changing their point of views, and and the universe is under no uh, constraints to make sense to us. Let's put it this way. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So finally, we'll come to the dad jokes of the week. Most of you, if they have listened regularly, you know I have an affinity for cow jokes in particular. So I came across this one to add to my list of cow jokes. Uh, So where do, anybody know where milkshakes come from? Where do milkshakes come from? Nervous cows. (laughs) Okay. I so need a cow sound effect. I really do. Uh, although a friend of mine uh, pointed out that they also come from cows on trampolines. Uh, I suggested nervous cows on trampolines as a compromise, but they both work. Okay, okay that's, <laughs> that's kind of getting silly, but okay, I guess that's the point. <laughs> so last uh, Halloween, you know, everybody has costume parties. And so I, I turned up, I crashed a, a costume party and I dressed as a football, but I was kicked out immediately. Okay. Right. And then finally, what is worse than raining cats and dogs? Hailing taxis. Okay. 
yes, yes. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. nice. Thank you. Thank you. So that is all we have for this episode of JavaScript Jabber, learning about more things that you shouldn't do or should not use in JavaScript. Hopefully it's been useful to you. Uh, Chuck had to leave early, as he said, so we will yeah, say goodbye. If I, if I can just, you know, throw a quick uh, comment, uh, you know, if people have ideas for additional things in JavaScript that should be avoided, or alternatively, if they think that, you know, I'm, I was full of it and, and made, <laughs> made incorrect assertions, then by all means, do engage with me. Show me the error of my ways, or alternatively, tell me that uh, you totally agree with me, whatever, either way works. You know, I'm on, on Twitter, Dan Shapir. Feel free. And there's also the uh, JS Jabber handle on Twitter for the podcast. Yeah, for so, sure. And we will all get that. Alrighty, thanks for listening, and we will talk at you next time. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y dot com to learn more.